If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app for iPhone and Android available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash newsletter. You're listening to Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn. Time to get embarrassed with us. Oh! Hello there. You've made it. It's 3 p.m. on the East Coast, and you're listening to Lost and Rewound. My name is Alon Danziger. I'm the host and producer for this program, and where we dig deep into the rough and raw sounds from your old audio from the yesteryears. If you want to be on the show like our guests are going to be in a little bit, you should email the show, lostandrewound at radiofreebrooklyn.org. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear what you have. This week, we've got some amazing musicians who are in the studio, and I'm excited for what they have to share from their past. So let's get started then, shall we? Turning to the show as always, we got Will Hasty. Hey, yo, yo, yo. Hello, I'm trying a British accent this week and it really When, when do you never try a British accent? I know, I always fall into it. It's awful. It's, it just sucks. I sound like shit. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Rachel Teichman. <laughs> hey, comrades. And uh, joining the show for this hour, uh, our guests are Finn and the Rust Kickers. Uh, they are a Brooklyn-based rock band whose most recent album can be found on Bandcamp entitled One More Notorious Crime. You might have heard frontman Finn Miller on Radio Free Brooklyn's Truth to Power show with our friend VJ R. Nathan. And you've undoubtedly heard the Rust Kickers on shows like The Rodent Hour and Brooklyn Bandstand. Their music is very much a favorite here. And joining Finn today on Lost and Rewound is one of his Rust Kickers, Bill Hafner. Bill and Finn, welcome to the show. Welcome. Oh, wait. Thanks. <laughs> well, thanks, Alon. How are you? We've been having great. We've been having a lot of fun chatting uh, before recording about uh, just, you know, talking shop about music uh, over the years. And I'm glad that we could have you to, you know, share some of your music from the past as well. Oh, my God. There's so much, so much music here. It's incredible. It's a mine. The two of you uh, were in previous bands, but how uh, did you specifically meet uh, to the mines being milled to be in the Rust Kickers? Well, we actually met at a gig that our band was doing, opening for Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Way Holler. back, yeah, way back, at, uh, we were doing a show in uh, Nassau Community College. What year was that? 80, what year? 87. Oh, my sister was born there. That's and, a good year. Well, right? there you go. Lots of people. Uh, and <laughs> I don't, I'm sure some people were uh, conceived that evening. Sure. But, uh, ow, ow. Uh, yeah, so we, uh, <laughs> we were um, uh, playing there and uh, Bill was there and, and that particular band that I was in called Erratic Sculpture broke up at the time or shortly thereafter. Some of the musicians went one way, others went other ways. We just split up, very amicable. And uh, Bill wound up playing for some of the musicians that were 
in the band forming another band. So that's how we met and how we made our connection. So this was the first time you guys had ever seen each other play? That's Well, well yeah, I had I never seen him seen play. Until later on, but yeah, I saw him play. And, and then what happened was quite a few years later, uh, about five years ago, hmm. I uh, was pressed by a, a booking person, uh, who, a friend of mine, uh, Gustavo Rodriguez in, uh, at LAC Bar, to uh, put a band together to play. I decided I wanted to play with somebody I always wanted to play with and I never had. And that was Bill. So That's I saw me. him out. We were getting together for a one-off gig. And much to my chagrin, we've been together ever since. Yeah, I couldn't leave it at one-off anything. <laughs> what was wonderful is that we met out at Bill's studio, a uh, silo studio out in, uh, in Mastic Shirley area. And that's it in Long Island. That's yeah, correct. That's way way out, there. out there. You can't even see it from here. No, you can't see it from here. Is it the last stop on the, on the, on the third? Uh, practically. No, it's, it's halfway between it's here It's not and even a stop, actually, from no, my experience. It's okay. got to kick you off the train. Man. That's right. So, uh, <laughs> so we met out there, and we uh, noodled around on some songs. And uh, to tell you the truth, because I was very uh, enamored of his playing, I, I was quite nervous presenting songs. And uh, I'm not really sure how he felt. but well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you how I felt right now. I've felt the songs were so good that I was so happy to be making the songs. So I think we're kind of even on that front. So, so yeah, it was a love fest. It really is. Yeah. It's a mutual admiration society. Why Rust Kickers? Um, he had made some statement about putting a band together. and We hadn't uh, really played. He hadn't played in a while in a band. And I know that John and Al weren't really all that active at the time. So he made some comment about kicking the rust off. And I said, yeah, like a bunch of rust kickers. And that was it. It probably, if we had given it some more thought, could have come up with something better. But it's a good, it's a good phrase, and it's it just works. It's false, in other words. And there's nothing else like it. So, were you both raised in the city? Uh, no, I was actually raised out on Long Island um, in East Northport. I was born in uh, Middle Village, Queens, but it didn't last. I spent my early years in Brooklyn and moved out to Long Island for a period of time. Where in Brooklyn? In where, Flatbush. Where in okay. Pl- really? Where in Flatbush? Avenue C. Oh, Tell you Road. That's amazing. No way. Well, uh, I grew up at the end of Montague Street. It's in Brooklyn yeah. Heights. It's nowhere near Cortellio Road. <laughs> you know what? You know what? It is within the realm you know of where best friends. Road yes, is. I do. Okay, Listen, good. we're in Brooklyn, yeah, right? I mean, is that all that matters? <laughs> Compared to East Northport, it's around the corner. <laughs> Literally. Being uh, you know, in Long Island. Sweet, but you grew up uh, more or less in your formative years in Long Island. Yeah. So there's the point where, like, two L.I. boys, uh, when they want to get their punk rock on, they go to the CBGBs, the Nightingales, they go and play uh, the shows out in the city. What's that like, you know, training in and, you know, being, you know, up, you know, front, you know, top to bottom, decked out, uh, ready to go to a show or play a show? Well, going to shows was, was always, a, always a kick. I, I was going to shows in the city since I was about 16. My first regular, my first band that, that I put together uh, erotic sculpture. I actually, we played at CB's and we played at, at CB's with the Ramones and along with eight other bands or whatever yeah. it was. But yeah, um, that was, yeah. So it was a, it was a big, uh, it was a, it was a big time. And, and, uh, one of our favorite places to play was a place called the dive, uh, which I believe was on 25th and 7th. It was right around the corner from FIT there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was where we were like house band for a while. Oh, nice. So it was absolutely great. Yeah. So if you um, fast forward a few years to the mid-2000s, what do you think about the whole emo punk era? I would Speaking say for that, our more young, our younger yes, audience. I would say that there's, there's many bands 
that have carried on a good tradition of creativity. Here's the big problem with, with quote, you just mentioned punk, right? Well, I specifically mentioned emo punk. Yeah. Well, the big problem is that things become cliched and they become formulat- formulamatic very quickly. Yeah. You know? I think there's a whole bunch of great bands out there doing great things. And even if somebody wants to jump on the bandwagon of some kind of style, uh, that's great too. But unless they're adding something, it's like, eh, I don't know. I've heard this. I remember that we were, scales were getting written up in um, alternative press. Scales being your, the, uh, the band. The scales are the band that started after, after the, my, the band yeah, I was in broke yeah, up yeah. that he joined. So, yeah. so this was a band I had from 88 to 94. Mm-hmm. And I remember that the great scales band. were getting written up in alternative press and things like that. And then, the band broke up, and I stepped away for a while to raise children and whatever else. And my youngest daughter got into the emo thing, and uh, she's got these, suddenly these uh, new copies of Alternative Press are showing up in the mailbox, and I'm looking through them, and I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> Not what I remember. Sure. But, uh, you know, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's, you know, I don't, I don't personally feel it's quite as genuine, but, mm-hmm. you know. There was a reaction to the Sex Pistols uh, when you were growing up, too, well, I imagine, that had sure, a similar course, sure. feel. The, the Sex Pistols were just as created. You know, They were created to try to sell clothes or something, I think was originally the uh, plan. So I don't know. I don't know what's real and what isn't. So. <laughs> but you guys, but going back to that previous era at CBGB's, I mean, you guys were there at the, I, I don't know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of the middle and the tail end when LES was really LES, that sort of center of the arts and right. creativity. Yes. God, CBGB's in the Ramones era? That's like, you know, playing that concert where Jimi Hendrix and the Moms and the Papas and the Who played back to back, you yeah. know what I mean? That's it's like, the, the wild best. Yeah. But, but once, it, once again, as is always the case, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lens you look through. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it didn't seem like the biggest deal at the time. No. We were playing a gig. We were happy to be playing the gig. We loved the Ramones. But the Ramones were playing there all the time. Yeah. So it wasn't like it was... Uh, uh, yeah, it well, didn't that, seem like a huge deal. It's well, then just, forgive my no, but you know, distant idolization. Well, but. no, it's it is you know, it's it's cool now to say that we played there, but you know, at the time it was a Wednesday night, and there were four or five other bands on the bill, and you didn't go on till two o'clock in the morning. Right, sure. You know. I gotcha. That's that's a Wednesday in New but, York City. But yeah. did it did it feel like so? My understanding of the LES side because I've always been raised idolizing that period, mm-hmm. even though the LES was known for being a total shithole. Sure, right. It's always been portrayed to me as you could just walk down the street, shoot a film, and bring artists along with you. You could go to a rock show and see really good shit that was people genuinely experimenting with things that most of the people hadn't seen before. Yep. You know, was that like Paris in the, you know, 1890s? I mean, honestly. <laughs> well, I, had a, I had a sense that the music world was changing drastically. Yeah. And I loved seeing it and being part of it, seeing people from uh, Sonic Youth to James Chance to Lydia Lunch to all the all that. Uh, you know, I'd, we'd see all that live and we'd see it nightly and you'd wander around and literally walk into the shows and uh, not just at CB's, but at various venues. And um, yeah, so you were aware that you were in a world where things were changing and things were important that you were seeing. Mm. Uh, you definitely, I mean, I definitely had that awareness that things I was seeing was, were not happening elsewhere, Mm. that this was a change. Talk to us a little bit about, uh, the origins of Stephanie and was that birthed out of uh, noticing those changes in genres, uh, kind of (laughs) splintering around. Well, Stephanie, Stephanie is a song that was written, uh, in, I guess about 85. My, 
songwriting colleague and I, Jim Fletcher, he was uh, going to New Paltz to college in 82, I should say. This is written around 82, not 85. So this was a song written about a girl named Stephanie in New Paltz, who we knew. It was about what was referred to, and I, I believe is still, is. still been referred to as the Tripping Fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, 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 they like their drugs over New Paltz. Oh, yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. Yeah. Around yeah. New Paltz, and it's about, it's, it's really a love song. The thing about Stephanie was that we had recorded it, I recorded it again later, the version we're hearing tonight is recorded a little later. It's a song that would not let go. That's one of the things that's interesting to me about your show, Alon, is that you're talking about songs or things like that, that, that really hold on to you, and you can't um, let go of them sometimes, you know? So you do these early demos, you do these early recordings, and then you come back and do them again. Like we just recently, it's on One More Notorious Crime, a new version of Stephanie. The song just keeps on following you back. That's back right, until back. you're happy with it. And uh, the, the version I did back in, I think, 1990, which is the version we're hearing, is actually a like a power pop version of it. Excellent. Yeah. Well, shall we take a listen then? Let's give it a listen. Yeah, tagline. That is Rachel's wonderful tagline. Gentlemen. I mean, it's pretty flaming. I would say it is uh, monumental. It feels like a "This is how I got over this person" song. Like this is this is a pain that is hitting me, and this is how I'm getting it out. Well, that's not completely incorrect. 
That certainly would be. It's a, just mostly uh, incorrect. That would, <laughs> I mean, that would be that would be a thing. That was uh, that was. Uh, yes, it was. It was a. Uh, it was a memory that was very um, potent. Uh, potent. That's a good word for it. Have you been in contact with her uh, since the song? Uh, uh, not well. We were in. We were in contact afterwards. Uh, after I knew her uh, for a while. But not since that recording of the song. After we after we were performing it, she came to a few of the shows. That that had particular resonance for me because the first love of my life was named Stephanie. Oh my god! And we met in college. Oh my god! And it was a whirlwind. Ah! Well, this Wait, was a whirlwind. That's... This was this was two days. Yeah, that was a whirlwind. Holy shit! <laughs> I'm curious about the musicality of this song because 1990 is a very interesting time for rock music. Well, that 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 uh, that song uh, at the time it was written, which was a few years, as I said, before this. Yes. Uh, and I couldn't find one of the original versions for this, but it, it's pretty much the same as it sounded uh, then. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were we were listening to lots of REM and bands like that in Love the it. in the mid eighties, yeah. and um, we had seen them live in a whole bunch of little small venues and things like that. And we were listening to a lot of like jangly pop. It's awesome. And I love that. And uh, but also rooted pop, you know, in terms of of structure. So. Um, yeah, so that's that's what it came from. We were writing, we were intentionally writing what we considered to our version of a pop song, certainly a love song for, uh, or an emotional attachment song, shall we say? I don't know if it was love <laughs> for Stephanie. The chemistry never really uh, kicked back up. It was just a magical weekend of of hallucinogenics and sex. <laughs> I am from Woodstock, so I can't speak upon um, the drugs that New Paltz has, but I can <laughs> attest to the fact that my parents did not move to New Paltz because uh, it was there was too many drugs. School, yeah. From Woodstock, I get you. I do believe the weekend that I met Stephanie, uh, we were playing there. That's one of the reasons we were there. So, uh, in New Paltz. I don't remember where we played. We played there a whole bunch of times, but yeah. yeah. You have another track here called Andy Warhol's Dead. This was literally written uh, the night that Andy Warhol died. I see. Well, that he was written, it was, he actually died the day before, but I read about it in the newspaper. We had, were playing a gig on a Saturday night. I slept very, very late on a Sunday and in 1987, and I was reading the New York Times, and um, there was Andy Warhol dead, and I wrote the song that night. We recorded it the next night on Monday night and we mixed it on the next Tuesday night. It turned out that the band kind of split up at that point. (laughs) So it never actually got released until years later, but this is literally the demo, the whole thing. It was written uh, the the Sunday that I found out he died the night before, I believe, but uh, that's this song. So, so this song kind of got lost in the, in time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just re-listening to it uh, about, thinking about doing your show it's an erratic sculpture b-side and you specifically thought of it for this show yeah something that was lost it's a recording that was lost amazing so yeah it's never been literally lost it's one of those things in in life where where um it's a it's a time marker in life uh warhol seemed to be around my whole life the one of the first records the first two records i purchased when i was a kid for my uh, eighth birthday with my birthday money was uh, the Beatles Sgt. Pepper, and uh, I had some extra money, so I looked around, and I wound up purchasing an album that I hated for years, which was the first Velvet's album in mono, the Velvet Underground and Nico, which I still have. 
I still have them and both of them. Andy was a big part of my uh, development in life because I was always following him even when I was a teenager. One of my great regrets in life, by the way, is that uh, in about 1976 or so, we were walking, my girlfriend and, and I at the time were walking when I was 16. Uh, this is, uh, we were walking by uh, some gallery in, in Manhattan, at, right around the Mud Club and places like that. And, and uh, there was a print for sale in the window, and it, it was like one of the prints that, he, that Andy did of, of uh, Mick Jagger uh, for the uh, Love You Live album. Rolling Stones album. So it was like this cut up uh, kind of colors across his face. It was like 225 bucks. Mm. And I was like, eh, you know, yeah. I'd, let's go get some beers instead. And I was like, I want to kill myself. Yeah, that's like <laughs> the biggest regret. I feel that regret so deeply. So anyway, so Andy Warhol's Dead is about, you know, Andy had a big, uh, big place and a lot of stuff I listened to and a lot of stuff I uh, was informed by, the Velvet Underground, all of that. And uh, that's how it is. So this is Andy Warhol's Dead. Don't 
death or would you liken it to somebody like anthony bourdain's death when a cultural figure drops out especially unexpectedly that that is is something that uh can uh strike you you feel you feel that change that that's something you valued not so much about that individual but rather about that cultural position that cultural anchor is gone and yeah no, yeah, I mean, for either yourself or Bill, um, feeling this question, can if it's not Andy Warhol per se, is there another cultural figure, musically or art, what have you, that when they did pass away, that moment really like was a shell shock? It would be Kurt Cobain is the one I would. Kurt Cobain. Yeah, because it, you know, first of all, it was a suicide, so that was pretty rough. It was also the the grunge thing was done, you know. It was, and it was like that cemented it being done, you know. It's like and a marker. Yeah, it was. Well, that's it. Show's over. Right. I felt that with, uh, I felt that with both Bowie and Lou Reed. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, the Lou Reed death is the thing that got me back into playing music, because uh, a place I go to a lot, LIC Bar in Queens and LIC, they always did tribute shows to people. For example, like a Van Morrison show around St. Patrick's Day, that sure. kind of thing. And I was always asked to do it. And when Lou Reed passed, I was asked to do it. And uh, I said, all right, I'll do it. Uh, you know, I sang a couple of songs live there, you know, a couple of Lou Reed songs. And that's what got me back into uh, playing again and forming the Rust Kickers. Yeah. So, yeah, there's some things that are big, big markers and have big, big effects on you. It's not so much the individuals or idol worship or anything along those lines. It's just like they're cultural markers. They're people that that you have, that their worlds, the people they're around, like Warhol, Lou Reed, David Bowie, that that anchor has now been pulled. That's an effect I feel. When we come back from the break, we have even more tracks to hear from both Bill Hafner and Finn Miller. Uh, this has been so far, uh, I would consider to be a, a, a success, considering the experiment of simply just bringing tracks from your past and unearthing them for us. This is a, a really a, a genuinely uh, monumental experience for for me to be able to do this for you guys. Well, it's well, great. Thank it's you great very to, much. Thank you. Great to be on, Elon. Yeah, thank you so much. Wonderful. I would like to uh, yeah. mirror that sentiment. Yeah. So <laughs> we we have more. We're not done yet. We're gonna get back here and keep on with the music. Are you excited, Rachel? I have never been more flaming in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Lost and rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn. Right back with yeah! the guys from the Rust Kickers. Radio Free Brooklyn. Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. To help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radiofreebrooklyn.org/donate. Every cent helps us to continue to stay on the air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax-deductible to the fullest extent of the law. 
Again, that's RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. If you want to listen to past episodes of Lost and Rewound, there are a number of different options at your disposal. I'm happy to say that SoundCloud and Apple Podcast are very, uh, shall I say, uh, convenient portals for listening to the archives. Um, you also have the option of taking a look at our profile page. And if you go to our profile page, that's radiofreebrooklyn.org slash LAR, you'll see the megaphone drop-down player below our information with uh, all of the episodes right there for you to take a listen to with the click of a button. It's all very easy. I know that the uh, uh, Finn and uh, Bill have uh, gotten a chance to listen to some of our episodes, but uh, which way did you get a chance to listen? Through your link, through your site, through Radio Free Brother. Aha! There you go. And it was easy, yes? It was easy, yes. Ah, and what, what episodes stood out? Well, we listened to, I listened to three of them, so I enjoyed all of them. The last three that were up. Yes. And, and to tell you the honest truth, I was really listening to the format, because I was listening to what kind of stuff was being played so yeah. we could figure out what what are we bringing to this to, yeah. to this show? And it was really like a pro. Well, you're also a radio DJ out in Long Island. Is that I correct? am right on WUSB Stony Brook. I host a show called Finn's Revolution every Tuesday night, seven to nine. Ooh. That's right. My ninety point one FM, the first station of the nineties. Bill, we're going to get to you in a little bit. I'm not we, going anywhere. So. You, no, you have tracks that we have to hear. There is one more track of Finn's that has to be heard. Uh, which, uh, according to you, Finn, you say this is an embarrassing track, so I'm excited. Well, well, we used to, one of, one of my favorite things uh, from my time with a band called Pig Earth, kind of a, an alternative experience to the band Erratic Sculpture I was in at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pig Earth, we used to just, the whole concept was we would just have fun and do things. One of the things I used to do in my recording studio that I used to own is we used to do a lot of commercials. Um, you know, so people would come in and do radio commercials and things along those lines. So I would be engineering them. We'd do commercials. So we did a, bu- a few of our own commercials, my band, and this is an extended commercial. We, we used to do commercials for free, of course, at the bars we liked. <laughs> at the, wait, commercials? For, for the bars we liked. I see. So this particular one is for a bar that no longer exists, so therefore we can do it because it's not, you know, we're not breaking any uh, rules. <laughs> That's right. And it was called the Buoy Four Tavern, and it was way what? out east on Long Island. What does that even mean, the uh, Buoy Four Tavern? Who knows? It was who is probably the on the water. Like, who is the Buoy Four? Oh, well, you're we... thinking of it as a rock band, and it's like Buoy, like, you know, like the thing that lets you know where the channel is, uh-huh. and this is the fourth it was on one. The, it I was see. on the south south shore right? okay. Oh, okay. Yes, so, of Long yeah. Island. Fair. So, well, not really fair, but, uh, so anyway, this is, <clears throat> I, we, we did a bunch of commercials for different places and, uh, this is one of our extended things where we do an entire song. Usually we were doing commercials that would say things like, um, we'd introduce, you know, whoever the announcer, the DJ was going to fill in whatever the special was that week, for example, at the bar, you know, uh, my break line would always be, uh, so why don't you be quiet for a little while and tell them about it. <laughs> You know, so, you know, that kind of deal. So, uh, so anyway, this is, this is about the buoy four and it's like really unbelievably stupidly specific, which is what makes it, makes Uh, me happy. Come to the right place. That's right. It's, it's like, it's like we're mentioning all of our friends at the bar. So yeah, this is it. And my friend Mark, who was our bass player at the time is actually singing this one. We wrote this one together. Hey man, did you hear that cool new song on the radio? What station is that you have on there? WUSB 90.1. Long Island's first station of the 90s. Yeah. 
a friend of mine. He's back there cooking shrimp and wine. Jimmy's spilling drinks all over the floor. And Jonathan owns the bar wearing a Reverend Jimbo and solves all our sins. We'll all have a rocking time at the food well, Laureen is my valentine, a bit of golden sunshine. She always makes me smile when I'm working the door. And Patty pours great drinks for you and might just chat for a second. We'll all have a rocking time at the pool and So my friends, if you guess you everything you do. Never say that this place is a bar. Let's drink another round Let's put some shooters down And we'll all have a rocky time At the Well, the in his shorts and ties Got it on his face and he never lies The key to moonlight's here after closing the store And if you step in some strange goo Well, Chris will clean it up for you We'll all have a rocky time At the booth. There's Tammy all dressed up in drag With Ed and Matt and Don the Rag Watch Peter's dog just throw up on the floor There's Kale and Amy just having a ball As long as Gary doesn't hit the wall We'll all have a rocking time at the pool So my friends, if you If you everything you do Never say that this place is a ball Doofus, I'll meet you at the buoy four after opening. This <laughs> <week>. <laughs> All right, I, I gotta say, like it seems like that seems like a good friend bar. It was you know a good friend. I mean? It was a good friend bar. Yes, I, I want to go to the buoy four. I wish yeah. I could go to the buoy four too. 
you went to the buoy for plenty of times, yes, Bill? No, I never went there at all. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> God, I know nothing what, about uh, that. This is the first time you've heard this track. Yeah, I, the first this time I've heard time anything. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I mean, we had a, we had a different kinds of uh, crap holes we went to on Long Island at that time. So, <laughs> although uh, you went to some of them too, like the Glass Apple and places like that. What, but, what, was your uh, haunt uh, a, a bar that deserved its own anthem as well? You think? No, no, no. <laughs> well, see, I disagree with that because the Glass Apple well, the definitely glass, deserved yeah, its yeah, own. Yeah, yeah. That, that so that's a good uh, song yeah. title. You could make a Glass Apple. Hell song. yeah, that's yeah. like Baby in a Straitjacket. It's a good. That's like that's got a uh, got some good love. Formerly, formerly a strip bar, and yeah. uh, then the, the great thing about it was it was a beer distributor right next door, so you nice. could didn't need to buy their drinks. You could drink in the parking lot. We've gone through and combed through uh, a, a decent grip of the uh, Finn Miller catalog. Now uh, we shift over to you for "Misery Loves Company" by your old band, The Skells. Well, the the, the "Misery Loves Company" song is a song that Finn also played. As the original, a, yes, originally uh, when as a radic sculpture, so it, it had a double life. I had nothing to do with writing it. I played the guitar. You know, it's from the, uh, the album we put out in 1988, and uh, it's it's loud and it's fast and it's fun. And uh, that's uh, you know, we'll talk about it more when it's done. You can listen to the lyrics. It's about uh, twins who uh, you probably heard the story about the twins who uh, spoke their own language to each other. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I've heard all about that. Yeah, so that's what the song is about. So uh, it's it's, uh, it's a pretty deep meaning. Oh, my God, I can't uh, wait. I, I don't know about this, but I suggest we just dive in, and then I'll have all the questions if I... Sure, you knock yourself over there, son. Okay. <laughs> I do it every week. I'm just like you. I'm exactly like you. There's no one can tear us apart We speak the same language and share the same thoughts And the same petrified little heart Misery 
Wasn't it? That was terrific. Yeah! Please, please tell me who that front man was. Was it you? Please tell me no, who it was it you. No, it wasn't me. I, I, I've tried the front man thing. It doesn't work for me. Thank but that, you for asking. But no. that slick guitar solo was Was you. not me either. I did not play the slick guitar solo. <laughs> Willie Ligori played the slick guitar solo. I just did the scronking and the noodle, and that was his thing. Nice. No, this, the front man, it was the guy who wrote the song was this guy named uh, Sport Murphy. His mother and father did not name him Sport. He named him <laughs> Michael. He chose the word <laughs> Sport later on in life. Uh, he's an artist. He lives out on Long Island. Uh, he's still there. That's all I really have to say. Was that common? Were you guys <laughs> sort of like barred from each other's pages? Well, I think in the early the early Skell stuff, it probably was. Yeah, they, the they were stuff. they were given. I, I was, there were a couple of songs that moved from one band to the other, and I was given recordings, and I learned the guitar parts, and the guitar parts that I learned happened to be played by him previously. So that's the kind of a connection there with that. Right. And that was one of them. There were like two or three other ones at the time. One of the very cool things about it is that before Erratic Sculpture broke up, right at the time what I was talking about, this the band is that when, I was what, in. And what year was this exactly? Uh, like 788. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Right? And uh, before we broke up, you know, well, we broke up. And then uh, so some of those songs went with some of the other members of the band to form the Skells. Uh, and that's that's what Bill got recruited for yeah. there. We had done the song first, uh, Erratic Sculpture, and then the Skells really kicked it. And then we wound up doing it as the Rust Kickers at our very first gig. Yeah, uh, we've done it off and on. on we've on done it a few yeah. times, so we still love to do we'll it. We'll probably record it someday. Probably. Make a single out of it. <laughs> I mean, that definitely, like, the one consistent theme with all of the music that we've heard today is they're just fun. Yeah, Honest, a, like you guys are just—you seem like you gotta be having to make, gotta be amazing to watch you guys live. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, we like having fun. We also take it seriously to some degree. It's just to always... some degree. Was there a point in time where you uh, realized that this was something you should be having fun with and not something you should be taking seriously? From the very beginning, it always had to be fun. Yeah, there's no. always had to be a big part of fun in it because there's no point in doing it if it's not fun. I'll give you a quick example. Way, way, way back. Uh, when John, uh, our bass player too, up until very recently, and I, we, we were in the we're in erratic sculpture together, right? So there's four of us in the band, and we played our very first gig, and our very first gig was at a place called uh, the Checkmate Inn, <laughs> out on Long Island, and a little tiny bar, and we played it. And at that gig, this guy comes up to us and he says to us, uh, says to me, he says, uh, I want you know, I'd love to manage you guys. Right. I was like, well, that's great. That sounds good. You know, <laughs> this is like 84. Right. So I'm like, that sounds good. Great. He's like, but you got to get rid of your bass player. He doesn't have the look, you know, or whatever he said to us. And I was like, well, that's not going to happen. You know? And so it's always been for me about fun first and friends first. And that's how it's been. And I've had a few band members who've wanted to shoot me because of that, because it's been, <laughs> Like we've had various opportunities over the years, which, you know, I don't even want to talk about. But the point is we had various opportunities. I was like, this sounds like too much work. That's a real bros before hose deal you got. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly put, Rachel. And um, 
God, I could tell you stories about that, but that's a different story. <laughs> so um, you mentioned the bassist, uh, of whom is not in the band anymore. Right. So this is a, a, a gentleman by the name of John, of whom was uh, gentleman John, of whom was in the band, uh, was in the Skells, or was no, he, uh, he was in erratic sculpture first. He was in erratic sculpture, and then he was in the Skells. Yeah. and he was in the that's Skells. Guy left, yeah, yeah. And then he would have been, or he is effectively an honorary rust kicker, but yeah. uh, he's on most of the rust kicker songs. Yeah. Okay. But he's not in the band anymore. He's, no. He, he, he is, but he isn't. He doesn't play with us anymore. Who plays the bass, but... Uh, my uh, my uh, daughter, Delaney Hafner, plays the bass. That's incredible. Yep. Now, I, I, now, normally when we have people on the show who are musicians, uh, the inevitable question comes as to what uh, was the situation growing up with your parents? And, I mean, obviously that applies for you guys in terms of, like, whether they played music or if there was anybody else who uh, inspired you to play music. And uh, this is sort of an unusually uh, good uh, place to sort of pivot into the sort of the inverse, which is that Mm -hmm. you're a father. Yes. And you're a father as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And have your children uh, taken inspiration in being involved in music like their uh, parents? Well, my daughter definitely has. She has a band yeah. called, called the Bell Curves, uh, whose album just came out. That's an awesome band name. Yeah, it's spelled B-E-L-L-E. You know, like, uh, oh, like I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. Okay. Yeah. You get it, huh? The beautiful curve. How, right. how long ago did she start playing bass? She uh, started playing bass when she was tw- 11 or 12. Awesome. And she's 23 now. Yeah. She plays everything. She's a fantastic arranger and singer and producer and uh, recording engineer. She graduated from SUNY Purchase with two degrees, studio production and artist management. She's a fantastic musician. And, she is. Uh, you can't say enough good things about her. She, is she on Instagram? or is there, I'm so She's sorry. on it. The bell curves are, are everywhere you want to find them. Will's going to look, look her up right Delaney, now. Delaney is, is uh, uh, one of our lifesavers in terms of uh, expanding the way we do our music. Because she plays bass for the Rush Kickers. Right, yes. but we've had bass players before, so that's not really the biggest thing. The biggest thing with her is is her head for uh, harmonies and, and, you know, so she really saves my ass a lot. <laughs> yeah, we just did a cut. She's on the road right now. She took a, a month-long trip around the United States. Uh, so we just did two gigs in the last two weeks without her with uh, a friend, Dan Kendall, who's a very, very talented Brilliant bass, bass player. player. Yeah. Great guy, but he doesn't sing. So we all of a sudden... And apparently he doesn't sing. I'm not going to sing like Delaney. So yeah, Delaney's, Delaney's a great addition to the band. She's wonderful. You have a son or a daughter who have... Uh, My youngest son is is a great saxophone player. He's on a, a new album. He's a, on the new album. Is that... Okay. Because it seems that's as well, one of the things I've noticed in a lot of these older songs has been the inclusion of saxophone. Something but I'll, I'll never... That wasn't him. But that yeah. was not him, but he yes. heard that and he was like, I want to do what dad does <laughs> that's with, right. that, yes. with that he's, guy. He's got a great ear. He's a great musician. Let's hear this track, this final track, in okay. where uh, it appears that this is uh, a solo track from your daughter, Delaney. This Hacker. was our drummer, Alan, uh, who's, I don't think we've mentioned yet. Alan is a fantastic. How can we not talk about know. Alan? Alan is, is an incredible drummer. He and that's this. another thing, very briefly, you know. We both worked with both John separately, because John was in Erratic Sculpture, John was in The Scales, mm-hmm. and we both worked with Alan separately, mm-hmm. and who's who's probably the greatest rock drummer alive. He is so, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, he's so perfect with his timing uh, it's a, without, you know, being, you know, like, he, I don't know. I don't know how to put it. When you, when, when, really when, when you get a really good drummer, it like it, it's like you've won. Well, that is that's what right. that's what the band is. Any good band is its drummer. That's right. Know? 
uh, and the rest of us can just screw around and do whatever we want. But anyway, <laughs> these were uh, a series of recordings I did with Delaney right around here somewhere. There used to be a studio called uh, The Kennel, and uh, my friend... Here in Bushwick? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we came in here uh, when she was 13, Okay. Maybe, maybe 12. I don't remember. So she just started she was, taking she bass was, lessons. She never took bass lessons. She just took the bass. <laughs> and uh, she was writing songs with my wife. And this is one of them. It's a, it's a little rockabilly thing, but it's it's Alan and me and her. And she is 13, I think. And you can tell by the way she sings. Oh, boy. Delaney. Three of us. Here we go. No, not no. in the mic. You got to do it away from the mic. Yeah, it's going to hurt somebody. <laughs> Take an eye out or something. Oh, my. I had to get Delaney's permission for that. You and did? Yeah. I'm like, listen, I, I want to play the 13-year-old you on the, on the show. And she's like, all right, go ahead. You know. Dude, I wish you were my dad. That's like the best rock upbringing ever. <laughs> I don't know anyone here. why she would be uh, embarrassed to hear her 13-year-old slaying on the bass. <laughs> oh, it has more to do with the singing voice, you know. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, but you know, like, little, it, 
it's secondary. I mean, the singing, like, you don't On that, think- yeah. I mean, but her thing now is all about her singing and sure. her harmonies and all that. Check out the bell curves. Yeah. Because, yeah, you really should. Uh, it's, absolutely it's, spectacular. I know that if I was 13 years old, I would be, like, super thrilled to be playing uh, or even singing with any, like, session musicians. You know, we started playing together when she was, like, 10, doing open mics and stuff acoustically, and then I got in touch with Al about being, you know, putting the band together to do some recordings and stuff. It was just to get her into the studio, well, you know, while she was young, and that's where her whole life has taken, you know, since then. Yeah, and since so. she's been in the Rust Kickers, it's also been a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's she's, worked out really she's well. She's added so much, so yeah. much to the band. This has got to be an ongoing series. I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, like, I, I'm just gonna say we got a, a, you know, 13 tracks that I was provided, and I'm think uh, we picked a good uh, lot, uh, a good handful. Yeah, you know, I'm not gonna put a bow on it. Yeah. You're still making the music that's going to be played for uh, in another yeah. 10 years. Oh, yeah, remember well, when yeah. we did this? Yeah, I mean, we have, there are dozens of dozens of songs on our uh, band camp and on, on the, uh, with the Spotify and all the other digital streaming and whatever else. You have shows coming up too, no? Or is there any... Uh, there are any... shows coming up. There's one at, at LIC Bar, uh, December haunt. 18th, I think. Yeah, LIC Bar's our haunt. We're playing on the 18th. And I'm also playing on... Uh, LIC Bar does these uh, tribute shows, so a big tribute show mm-hmm. around Thanksgiving is uh, doing songs from The Last Waltz by the band. Excellent. So I'm doing a couple there, Beautiful. and uh, that's on the 27th, I believe. Of course, if you want to learn more about Finn and his Rust Kickers, you can go to finnsrustkickers.com for more info. Uh Gentlemen, uh, you have been uh, saints. Uh, well, we get that all the time. For, for lack of a better term, yes. Uh, <laughs> Finn Miller and Bill Hafner as our guests this week on Lost and Rewound. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you, Elon. Thanks for having Great us. Great to be with you. And that will do it for us this week. Thank you to Rachel. Thanks. <laughs> and thanks to Will. Yeah. Once again, we are Lost and Rewound, and we'll be back next week, Thursday, 3 p.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. Yeah, well, ladies and gentlemen, me and the Rust Kickers are in the house tonight. We just got back from Washington, D.C., and we got something we want to see. Some people say that they don't know. I don't know. Some people say let's.
Hey there, you're a good listener. Thank you for l- 